Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. I like to imagine that you are a public figure or a politician, some kind of person who's got a message that you want to share with the world. I want you to think about how you're going to get your message out there. Now, you've probably got a team who's working on social media stuff, got a website for you, all sorts of things happening in the background. But for you, the big part of it is a series of speeches that you're going to give. And you go to different places, get different audiences before you, and you can articulate your message to this crowd. What are you going to say? How are you going to do it? How are you going to work to put your material together? If it was me, number one on my priority list would be, I've got to be really clear about what I want to say. Because I might only get one shot with this group of people. If I leave them confused, if I leave them with questions unresolved, that's a fail, isn't it? I was looking online at tips for communicators, and they say, hey, it's your responsibility if the people you're listening to don't get it. So number one would be make it clear. Make it comprehensive. Make sure that the questions people are likely to have get addressed in what you're saying. These would be some of the things. I love watching the West Wing and seeing the, the um, speechwriters there working to craft their message. I think one guy on it spent about a day working on a birthday card um, because they want to get the message so perfect for the occasion. When you think about Jesus, Jesus was a public figure. Jesus had a message to share. And Jesus, his main way of sharing the message was a series of speeches. He got in front of different people in different places, and he had the opportunity to tell them his message. He didn't follow the playbook very well. He didn't do what I would have done. He said strange things. He was like, right, everyone, it's a bit like a seed. It grows in the night when no one's looking, but then in the morning it's there. And you're thinking, huh? Is that it? Is that the speech that you've got for us, Jesus? That's strange, right? He spoke in parables. I wonder how you'd feel if you went out to listen to Jesus and that's what you got. And maybe you got a couple of them. Maybe like, oh, it's a bit like someone uh, found treasure in a field and then sold their stuff, bought the field, and then they've got the treasure. So I thought you were going to tell me something profound. I thought you were going to go through a, a deep exposition of the Old Testament and tell me everything. You didn't do that. You just told me a few simple stories. Today, in our series on the kingdom of heaven, we're going to talk about why Jesus spoke the way he did, what he was trying to do when he told these parables. And throughout Matthew's gospel, we get a scattering of all all different parables. There's a big clump of them together in chapter 13. And the one we're going on today, sandwiched in the middle of it, is an explanation of why Jesus spoke in this way. So you've got the parable told, you've got a bit of an explanation, then you come back to the parable. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the explanation bit first. We're going to try and figure out what a parable is, why Jesus would speak this way, what he was trying to do, 
and then we will dive into a parable itself. That's the plan. So I've got a definition from, this is from the Oxford English Dictionary, which might not be the most theologically astute textbook in the world, but they reckon a parable is a simple story used to illustrate a moral or spiritual lesson. Now that to me sounds like a sermon illustration. That sounds like when I'm up here and I've got a point to make, usually what I want to do is tell you the thing that I'm saying, but then come up with some anecdote from my life or from culture around us or that I've seen happen that kind of gets the principle across and makes it a lot easier for you to track with what I'm saying. So I'll tell this little story to illustrate a moral or spiritual lesson. Great, that's what I do. I want to ask the question, do you think that is a true definition of what Jesus was doing? Do you think that's why Jesus told the stories that he told? Just to have that question in your head. I was listening to a podcast from The Bible Project. They've done a whole series on parables. Absolutely brilliant if you want to uh, dig into this. And they did a thought experiment. So come with me on this thought experiment. This is about a Galilean farmer at the time of Jesus. They actually named him and the name they gave gave him uh, was Moshe. Uh, I think that was how Moses would have been said uh, at the time. So Moshe, he's a farmer in this little rural town near Lake Galilee. Small town, he would have known everyone else who lived there, close-knit community. From his house, he'd have been able to see maybe three or four other little similar towns all around the lake, and there'd be more further around. That was the, the context of where he lived. And his life was deeply rooted to the land. So he'd been there, his parents had been there, his grandparents had been there for generations and generations past. In fact, you could say for about a thousand years, With a short break for the time the people were in exile, Moshe's family had been working this land. But now the land, although he was still working it, it it wasn't really his. It was occupied. The Romans had come in and the Romans had imposed some pretty harsh conditions. The, The tax was through the roof. He was having to pay so much of his proceeds, he was finding it hard to feed his family while paying the tax that he was being asked for. He he had friends who this taxation had got so bad that they were having to uh, either sell off the land so they became uh, tenant farmers who were now working someone else's land uh, or they were having to sell themselves or their family members to be slaves to, to fund the tax that they owed. It was a harsh time. It was a difficult time. And yet at this time there were rumblings of something that had been mentioned in the Old Testament called the kingdom of God. And this promise that, well, when God is king, things will be okay. When God is king and the Romans aren't in charge anymore, we'll prosper, we'll do well, life will be fine. So you'd have different groups that would tap into this theme. You had some called the Zealots, and they were armed revolutionaries. You'd get maybe one or two people from Moshe's own town would go and join this group, and they'd be hanging out in caves and uh, trying by force and by violence to incite a revolution that kicked the Romans out. Got another group called the Pharisees who would say, well, it's not by violence that we do it, but we need to be diligently obedient to the law of God. And when that happens, the kingdom will come. Then you had whispers about this weird guy called John, 
who, who was living out in the desert, eating honey and locusts, and uh, just an oddball who, who fit the profile of a prophet. And he was telling people, you need to repent, you need to turn from your sin. God's kingdom is about to come. And then you hear whispers of another guy called Jesus. And he's going around, and you're expecting when Jesus shows up in your town, when he's there and he's teaching, it's all going to kick off. You're expecting a revolutionary agenda about the kingdom of God. And so you turn up and you hear him. And what do you hear? The kingdom of heaven is like seed in a field growing amongst the weeds until the harvest time. And then you go home. And you've heard, maybe you've heard a series of similar stories. It probably wasn't a, a one-minute teach. He was there a while, but these were the kinds of things he was saying. And then Moshe would go home. First thing I'd say is, has this definition been met? Probably not. It probably would have left him more confused than when he started. It probably would have left him with more questions. And what Moshe does next is key to everything. One option is he gets home, and in this little thought experiment, they, they named his wife as um, Elisabeth, and she says to, to Moshe, what, what happened? What did he say then? Moshe might say, it was a waste of my time. He just talked about weird stuff. He talked about seeds. He talked about how they grow. It was fine, but there's nothing to this. Let's just crack on with our farming. Oh, he says... It's an interesting story. I can remember it. Let me, let me tell you the story that he told me about the seed. And then they start chatting about it. Oh, that's interesting because that's how it is, isn't it? When a seed grows, and it's the kingdom of heaven like that. And the conversation starts to foster. One of two things can happen. Hearing a story like this makes Moshe, makes Elisabeth either lean in and want to know more, and want to ask questions, and want to go back next time Jesus comes around and hear another story, and maybe see if they can just grab him and ask a question and say, hey, that bit in your story, I think I tracked with it, but what was this thing about? Uh, and to pursue what he's trying to tell them. Or they can say, this is ridiculous. I've not got time for this. The kingdom of heaven is not coming today. It provokes a reaction. You lean in or you lean out. That's what a parable does. And as Jesus explains the parables, it seems like they're designed to provoke this kind of polarising response. Let me just read uh, what he says. This is Matthew 13, verses 10 to 13. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered them, To you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it's not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they do not see. And hearing, they do not hear. Nor do they understand. What he's saying is some people, there's something in them. There's a spark, there's a desire, there's a hunger for the kingdom. And when you've got that, more will be given to you. When you've got that and you're asking your questions and you're leaning in and you're going after Jesus and you're pursuing the answers, truth will be revealed. And when you've not, when it's not there, when there's not the spark, there's not the hunger, there's just the cynicism to dismiss it, 
And the parable means you've missed it. There's nothing. You won't take anything from it. I'll give you a few, a few more thoughts about parables then. Let's understand what's going on. First thing, parables make things clearer. Parables do make things clearer. They're picture language. You don't need a, a degree to understand a parable. If you're Moshe, you work on the farm, and Jesus talks about a mustard tree, you know what one is. You've seen one. It is visual. A picture speaks a thousand words. So it's a vehicle to convey things in a way that's simple and clear for all of us. A kid could understand what's going on. At the same time, the parables make things a lot less clear. Because it doesn't answer all the questions. It doesn't resolve what you might be asking. It makes things clearer for some. It makes things less clear for others. And what's the difference? The condition of your heart. So do you want it or do you not want it? Parables also provide commentary on the kingdom coming. So all of the parables, they're about the kingdom of heaven. And Rachel Held Evans says each of the parables features Jesus' very favourite subject, the thing he spoke about more than any other, the kingdom. So when Jesus turned up in the town, he didn't just go set up a podium and tell his parables and that was it. He did some other stuff too. So he would do miracles. He would heal the sick. He would cast out evil spirits from people. He would also have some meals. And he'd have some meals with some very... Um, Unusual, unexpected guests, let's say. So he didn't go for just the social establishment, the religious establishment. He'd gather all sorts of people to his meals. All of this was the kingdom coming. The miracles, the meals, the parables, they were all part of this package. But people would ask questions and people would uh, have their views on what was happening. There was one time where um, <clears throat> there was a big dinner that Jesus was invited to with lots of the elites uh, and they were like, hey, blessed is everyone who eats in the kingdom of God. And basically what they were saying is this meal that we're having, this is it. This is the bullseye. This is the kingdom of God in its fulfillment. And Jesus looked around. He's like, I mean, it basically looks like a bunch of um, respectable Jewish men sitting in order of social ranking. I'm not sure this is the kingdom dinner that we're going for. So he told a story about uh, a man who was throwing a banquet and the guests were rejecting it and didn't want to come. And so the gates were open to anyone and everyone from the streets. Well, that's a commentary, isn't it? Because these people have invited Jesus into their meal and saying, this is the kingdom meal. And Jesus told the story, so no, over here where I'm gathering with these people who you don't want anything to do with them, actually this is the kingdom meal and it seems like you don't want to be here. They were subversive stories commentating on everything that was going on. But it's not just that they were providing commentary, they were also part of it. Because by telling the stories, Jesus was creating this new people. He was drawing out those who lean in. He was drawing out those who would want a part of it. The parables are analogies. So they're not allegories. We're not meant to take every single detail and think this is what it must be. There are some uh, comedic examples of this out there. But it's not just um, a delivery vehicle for a proposition either. We like to do that. Boil down the parable to one sentence and say this is it. It's more like a house to live in. Go and live there. Like, think in your mind the perspective of the world that this story's offering and mull over it. But they're also theological. 
Kenneth Bailey, who's a New Testament lecturer who was based in Damascus for many years, great on Middle Eastern context of the Bible, described Jesus as a metaphorical theologian. That is, his primary method of creating meaning was through metaphor, simile, parable, and dramatic action, rather than logic and reasoning. He created meaning like a dramatist and poet, rather than like a philosopher. I think we need to get comfortable with truth being told through stories, truth being told through analogy, truth through metaphor. Last little points on parables before we read one then. They're simple. They're enduring stories. They're well-known stories. Most people, whether they come to church or not, will have heard of some of the parables. If you use the phrase good Samaritan, I think most people will know what you're talking about. And yet they're profound and they get under the skin. You know, if I was to say to you, you're wrong and let me tell you why you're wrong, how would you feel? Would the defences go straight up? They would with me. If someone just confronted my way of thinking so directly. But if someone could subvert it, if someone could tell me a story that made me reconsider, that would be a different matter. Klein Snodgrass says, direct communication is important for conveying information, but learning is more than information intake, especially if the learner is someone who already thinks they understand. People entrenched in their current understanding set their defences against direct communication and end up conforming the message into the channels of their current understanding of reality. Indirect communication finds a way in through the back window to confront a person's view of reality. I've got a friend called um, Liam Thatcher, who what he describes a parable being like is a stone in your shoe. Anyone know how annoying it is to get a stone in your shoe? It's there and then all through the day, if, you, if you've not actually dealt with it, it's just there and it reminds you that it's there and, and it's just a mental prompt that yeah there is something wrong here. A parable's a bit like that in your mind. So it puts something in there that you can't shake, that just keeps challenging and nagging away at your preconceived way of seeing the world. As you read a parable, let the word of God put a stone in your shoe that will challenge and provoke you to see things differently. So that's why Jesus taught in parables. That's a bit of background. We're going to read a parable now and we'll just have a think about how we respond. This is a parable about parables. You could call it a meta-parable. Uh, but just be ready and hear the word of God. This is Matthew 13, verses 3 to 9. He told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up and they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Imagine you'd gone out to hear Jesus teaching and that's what you heard. How would it land? What would you do? What would you respond to those words with? Well, Jesus explained this one. We don't get many explanations for parables as we go through. We get an explanation for this one. So I'm going to be kind and I'm going to unpack the elements for you. 
Verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom. It's a parable about hearing the word. So all the seeds that were thrown out, that is the kingdom word. So in Jesus' day, that would be the parables and the other things that he said. In our day, it would be every interaction we have with God's word. And my goodness, we have a lot of interactions with God's word today, don't we? We've got the whole full canon of the Bible. We hear about it in church. We hear sermons preached. We read through it in our own time. We've got community group. We go on social media and people have Bible verses with kind of um, weird pictures in the background. And these things are all over. God's word confronts us all the time. And this is a parable about how we hear. He's sowing everywhere. It's not just that he was going to religious places, not just well thought of places. The word was being sown. And what we see, if we read Matthew's gospel, when we get to chapters 11 and 12, we find all the different ways people were responding to it. Not everyone was saying, yes, Jesus, I want more of this. Some people were, some people weren't. Some people opposed him, some people ignored him. Some people thought he was crazy. Some people thought he was Lord. You've got this whole variety of responses. This story is about why. And I wonder if you've ever seen the same. I wonder if when you've been trying to share your faith, tell other people about God, you've seen mixed responses. Some people are interested. Some people have a question and want to know more. Some people, it's like they want to get out of the conversation with you as quickly as they possibly can. Mixed responses. And that's why he tells the story. Tony Evans says, if God's word is not working, you need to check the ground it's landed on because there's nothing wrong with the seed. The problem isn't the gospel. The problem isn't the kingdom of God, but sometimes it's the way it's received. So in verse 19, we get the first response. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what's been sown in his heart. So in the story, this was birds snatching the seed away from the path. And it's when someone just doesn't want to know. It's when someone's not interested. It doesn't land in the slightest. And he talks about the evil one snatching it away. And this is something that happens in any culture. There's a dominant narrative. There's a worldview. There's a way of thinking about things that basically makes people say, what, you want to tell me something from the Bible? The Bible's stupid. I don't want to hear anything from the Bible. And so they don't even have ears to give you any kind of a chance to explain what the thing is. So centuries ago, it would have been, no, you can't believe the Bible. There's miracles in that. And we're, we're rational people. We don't believe in that. So no, don't tell me about that. 25 years ago, it would be, Science. It's like, no, you can't tell me anything from the Bible. There are no dinosaurs in the Bible. There should be dinosaurs. And if there were dinosaurs, I might listen. Now it would be more to do with sexual ethics, maybe. The Bible teaches what it teaches on sexual ethics, and people would say, ah, I'm not going to listen to anything about that. And so they dismiss it. And it creates a setting where the whole word just gets snatched away without anybody getting a hearing. The second response, verse 20 and 21... What's sown on the rocky ground is the one who hears the word and receives it with joy, but has no root and endures for a while. But when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. These people have got no depth. 
I wonder if you've noticed, I've met loads of people like this, when they come in, they become a Christian, and they go all guns blazing. They turn up at everything. They turn up early at everything. They volunteer to be on every rotor. They're part of things for a bit. And then over time, it's just kind of a, uh, and it crashes. It's what happens when we confuse excitement with depth. Now, excitement is a good thing. I'm not saying we shouldn't be excited. We absolutely should. But we should realize that excitement won't carry the load long term. Depth will. Build rootedness into our faith. Things will get hard. There will be pressures of life. There will be pressures specifically around faith. I wonder if you're feeling pressure right now. I wonder if life is hard for anyone in here. I wonder if it's just weighing you down a bit. Well, what happens? The pressure can be like a sun scorching the seed. Did anyone ever do that thing when you were younger where you'd get a magnifying glass and you'd hold it like in the line of the sun and you'd set stuff on fire like grass? It's kind of like that, okay? The sun will scorch this seed. It's not deeply rooted. And so it will be there, but then it will be gone. The key here is we've got to learn to abide in Jesus. We've got to learn what it's like to lean into him, to draw life from him, to draw sustenance and nourishment from him. And then you've got the thorns, verse 22. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. What happens here is someone who's been leaning into God, all of a sudden, they find other things to lean into. They find other priorities. Life kind of catches up with them, and so they end up just without realising it, focusing away from God and onto other things. Now, this often happens at those pivot moments in life. So, you know, when you, you've been in a routine and a pattern, and it changes, Happens to some people when they first go off to university. Life's been one way, but they found new pressures, opportunities, responsibilities, things they want to do, and they've just stopped leading into God. Happens for other people when they leave university and get a job, and now, oh, there's real pressure on, and now there's real responsibilities on, and now there are new focuses on my time. Right, I'm going to lean into that. Happens when people get a promotion. Happens when people get in a relationship, get married, have children. Happens at all sorts of times in life because what it does is it makes us busy and it makes us fill our life with all sorts of stuff and we become tired and we get new toys, we get responsibilities and pressure. And often these are things that we want. These are things that we welcome into our life. But if we're not careful, it, it stifles the life out of what was once a vibrant spiritual walk with God. I think these last two points we can summarise. Be careful when things get hard and be careful when things get good. Both can be a danger. But the last soil, verse 23. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it and indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. The good soil bears fruit. The word multiplies. Think back to Moshe. 
hearing Jesus tell these stories. And imagine he's the good soil. Imagine he's someone who's heard. And once he's heard, he's gone home and he's had a conversation at home and he's pondered and he's learned and he's understood. I get it. I understand the kingdom. And so then when he's out in the fields, he sees his friend. He's like, hey, did you hear that thing that Jesus said? Let me tell you about it. It's a story. And he can remember the story. It's a simple story. But he tells it. And then he tells the next person. And the next person. And the word of the kingdom spreads. Because he's good soil. He's understood. And he's got it. That's the story of the sower. It's not the way someone today might write a speech, is it? It's not the way we tend to put things. And it leaves us with questions. And I think it leaves us maybe with one or two questions about the kingdom of heaven, but it leaves us with more questions about ourselves. It means that our minds start to reflect on, oh, right, so there are different ways of responding to the word. So we look in our heart, what's going on in me? And sometimes the temptation would be to ask, well, which kind of soil are you? I think the trouble with that question is it makes things too easy because it sounds like it's static. It sounds like you just pick one and be like, well, this is me. Oh, yeah, the good soil. That's the one that I am. I think it's meant to provoke a different question in us than just which one are you. I think the question it's meant to provoke is, how are you listening to Jesus today? How are you hearing his word right now? Is it landing with you? Are you leaning into it? Do you want to know more? Or does it just seem stupid? Or or is it just fine for another day, but right now I'm going through stuff. Right now, life's hard. Right now, I've not got time for that. Or I'm busy. I've got responsibilities. I, I just can't give myself to it. Are you leaning in? Imagine you're having the conversation with Jesus. Picture yourself. What's your body language looking like right now? Is it that body language that's guarded? Or is it that body language that's hungry, that's desperate to know more? Do you have your follow-up questions? Do you want to pursue it? Do you want to lean in to Jesus? And if you haven't been, if you think, honestly, I haven't been leaning in. Honestly, I I feel like one of the other soils describes me. What are you going to do? Do you want to take this moment to let the parable incite you, to spark something new, to spark that hunger? To all who have, more will be given. As you lean into Jesus, he will show you things about the kingdom and the kingdom seed will grow and bear fruit in your life. So will you let this story be a stone in your shoe that provokes you to lean into him?